Well, let's begin with a discussion about suffering. We don't like to suffer. We are suffering avoidant. That's normal. Nobody wants to suffer. But one of the questions that's often asked of antagonists and opponents is how can a good God allow suffering? This is an age-old question. It's been asked generation after generation. We've always struggled in a certain respect to answer this question because the Bible presents us with multiple reasons and also some mystery as to why a good God allows us to suffer. But some of the reasons that are spelled out for us in Scripture include punishment. Sometimes God allows individuals or nations to suffer in order to punish them because they're sinning against God. Other times, God allows us to suffer to refine us, to purify us from unrighteousness. Other times, God allows an individual or a nation or a group or a church to suffer so that others can look at their example and learn from their, the tenacity of their faith, and be strengthened and encouraged by that. This is why those of us that enjoy church history appreciate bumping into the heroes of the faith that endured much turmoil and temptation and trial. It just strengthens us. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered in order to redeem us. God permitted his eternal son to suffer so that we might be redeemed from our sin. There's many reasons in the word of God why we suffer. In the passage today, we will learn that suffering is also a grace that God gives to us in order to increase our generosity. That's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes God allows his people to suffer to actually increase our generosity. This is a grace because it is God's grace that permits affliction and suffering so that that affliction and suffering can produce in us the grace of generosity. God graciously then allows us to suffer in order that we might graciously give of our time, our talents, and treasures to meet the needs of other people. This is a biblical truth. In God's sovereign plan, even severe affliction upon God's people. It's not necessarily intended to crush us, and certainly it ultimately is not intended to crush us, but to shape us so that we might contribute in a more meaningful way to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A desire to give more than makes sense is where God wants to lead us. To get us to a point where we're actually giving more than even makes sense. So enter into the text with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We know that Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church. But rather than speaking about the Corinthian church here, he begins to speak about the Macedonian churches. Some churches that weren't too far away, but weren't in Corinth. And he uses their example to teach the Corinthian church something that they needed to learn. And by extension, here we are a couple thousand years later, God uses the example of the Macedonian church and the response of the Corinthian church to the Macedonian church's example to shape and forge us here at Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. The first two verses read as follows. We want you to know, brothers, 
about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, you would think that maybe the next statement would be something like, oh, God richly provided for them, or God rescued them from affliction, or all kinds of people came to know Jesus Christ. We usually think of grace from God as something that results in joy or pleasure or something that we really want. It's like, God, give me some grace. Because grace is always fun, right? Not always. Look what it says. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on your part. Notice the the language of this text, which is seemingly at odds. We have language like severe and abundance and extreme and overflowed and wealth. These are words of extreme. And what they communicate to us is that these churches in Macedonia experienced some very, very tragic circumstances. We don't know specifically what it was that they were going through, but it's described here in the Bible as a severe test. And rather than respond to that severe test with thoughts like this, well, I guess God doesn't love us anymore. I guess God isn't going to build his church. I guess God has abandoned us. I guess I better just throw in the towel, give it up, apostatize perhaps, lose my faith. Rather than responding that way, the severe test, which was an act of grace given to the Macedonian church, sanctified them in two areas. The area of joy and the area of generosity. They actually increased their joy. How is that possible, an affliction? Because they saw it through spiritual eyes. They saw the affliction as a gracious gift given to them by God to sanctify them in their faith. And then they got super practical about it. They started giving their money away. Even though they had very little. The text says, in a wealth of generosity on their part, and that is contrasted with extreme poverty. They were in the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of income brackets in Macedonia. They were extremely poor. What was their response to that? I guess God doesn't love us. No. Extreme generosity, unusual generosity, unexpected generosity. This test that God gives to them, as it's called, this severe test was a grace because it resulted in Christ-like living. Let's just process this for a minute. If in order to become increasingly like Christ, God were to afflict you, allow you to be persecuted, take all of your wealth away, and cause you to suffer extremely, would it be worth it? Oh, it's easy in church to nod and say, oh yeah, that's what I'm into. I'll give it all up for Jesus. And I have that attitude too. I'll give it all up for Jesus. 
sometimes, if you're anything like me, you're kind of surprised with how much of a spiritual wimp you actually are. And you get some suffering and affliction going on and you start to, oh man, I'm, what's going on, Lord? I didn't sign up for this. We need to understand that God uses affliction and suffering to purify us. And if we don't understand that, we will lose out on the lesson and the subsequent sanctification that God wants to work in our hearts and in our lives. Now, how do we know that this wasn't self-induced generosity? You, know, you can just will yourself into being generous. Do you know how we know that? Because there are many people in our world that don't know Jesus that are generous. They're philanthropists. They give their money away. Lots of money. They give their time. They serve. They, they volunteer in various charities. So how do we know that our generosity isn't self-induced, but in fact is God-induced? Well, we know that because the Bible says here they gave beyond their means. There are some people out there that are really wealthy. They're billionaires. To give a million dollars away is nothing. I mean, it's significant to us. But it's just a percentage of a very large fortune that they have. And we pat them on the back. Wow, this person gave so much money. But it's just a small fraction of all that they have. And we know from the scriptures that generosity apart from Christ is also motivated in some way, shape, or form by sin. A desire for a pat on the back or applause or perhaps some sort of um, desire to redeem yourself from past sins, whatever it might be. There's always deep down some sin there. But when you give beyond your means, beyond your capacity, that is not normal behavior. That's supernatural behavior. And this is what marked this church. They gave beyond their means. That's what the Bible says. This is not normal. It goes on to say, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly. Listen to this. Listen to this attitude. So was anybody like twisting their arm? You got to be more generous. No, listen to this. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So the specific object of their generosity in this situation was the relief of other Christians around Asia and into Israel that were extremely poor. So the poor, the extremely poor, were trying to help the poor and begging for the favor, they call it, the opportunity. It's like, please let us contribute to the relief of the saints. We want to. Hey, you forgot to ask us. This is their attitude. It's amazing. Verse 5 says in this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. No one had to ask them to be generous. They had butterflies in their stomach. They were like giddy to give. They were looking for opportunities to give. They had their hands in the air. They wanted to be called upon to give. 
You know, it's unfortunate that in the modern church and society as a whole, but it still leaks into the church, that many people actually have to be asked to give and taught to give. But ideally, a spiritually mature believer looks for opportunities to give. Isn't that amazing? And in this case, it was to relieve the poverty of fellow believers. By the way, our generosity and our ministry must start with the household of faith. This is the biblical paradigm. You go back to Acts chapter 6. And they had a ministry to the widows and the orphans, and it was first and foremost directed to the household of faith. Sometimes churches forget this. Yes, we want to minister to the world around us, but fundamentally our responsibility is to the household of faith. The Bible even goes so far as to say of an unbeliever, he who does not provide for his own is worse than an unbeliever, worse than an infidel. So this church got that. This is the paradigm and the pattern of scripture. They gave to relieve poverty among fellow believers. They were dedicated to God first, and that's what enabled them to be dedicated to the work of the church. So set your eyes back on verse 5. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then, meaning secondly, by the will of God to us. So the commitment priorities were, you're not supposed to be committed to your church first and then to God. That just makes you really religious. You're supposed to be committed to God first and then to your church. God is always our priority. Now, it's not an either or, it's a both and. But in terms of priority, you'll never really understand the nature of church life and our collective ministry until you are first and foremost committed to God. So it was out of their walk with God, their, their relationship with God, their commitment to God, that God equipped them and shaped them to be able to participate in the ministry with, with other believers here with the apostles and their immediate followers. By the way, do you have these priorities straight? You're first and foremost called to be a Christian, not a churchian. To be committed to Christ. And then out of that, committed to his bride. Do you look for opportunities to be generous with your time, your talents, and your treasures? Do you give of your first fruits or your leftovers? It's easy to give your leftovers away. It's like garage sale Christianity. Got all this junk in my garage, don't need it, haven't thought about it for a while, it's kind of irritating, it's cluttering up my garage. I'm going to throw it out in the lawn and try to make some money off of it. It's your junk, just get rid of it. What do you give to the Lord? Do you give your first fruits or your leftovers? Now, since the Macedonian church has manifested such generosity of spirit, Paul sends Titus to the Corinthian church to teach them about what the Macedonian church was doing. We learn by example, right? We know Christianity is largely an imitative faith. You watch other people, if everyone's kind of flaky and not committed, it's hard to be committed. But if you're around committed people that are sacrificial and generous and loving and on and on and on, you kind of up your game a little bit. So Paul sends Titus to encourage Corinth and to learn from these other believers. So look at verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus 
that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. What is the act of grace? But as you excel in everything, so Paul basically says to the church, by the way, you guys have a lot of awesome things going on as well. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, comma, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So every church has strengths and weaknesses. The Macedonian church has had it going on in the area of generosity. The Corinthian church had it going on in the area of faith. They were people of faith. They spoke well, articulated the gospel, presumably. They had good knowledge of the word of God. They were earnest. They were loving. But maybe in the area of generosity, they were a little weak. Hey, if we assess our church, there's strengths and there's weaknesses. As we assess our own spiritual lives, our families, and we compare ourselves to others. Like, yeah, there's some strengths we have, but there's also some weaknesses that we have. Now, keep the strengths alive and strong, but when you identify the weaknesses, you're like, okay, yeah, I gotta, I gotta grow up in that area. And this church had to grow up in the area of generosity, which again is not framed up as like a rule, a law. It's like finger wagging. It's framed up as a grace. I just think this is a radical thought. Let me put it to you this way. Generosity, if viewed as a rule, will fail. But generosity, if viewed as a loving act, will succeed. It's about your mindset. It's good to have faith and speech and knowledge, but we need to add to it generosity. And by the way, each generation needs to teach each subsequent generation how to be generous because we're all born selfish, right? Stealing our brother or sister's cookies, taking their toys, fighting over a teddy bear. Kids do that from day one. And we need to then teach every new generation how to be generous. So if you're a parent or a youth leader and you're in the parking lot today and you've been saddled with the responsibility to mentor and encourage or raise children, make sure you're teaching them how to be generous rather than selfish with their time, their talents, and their treasures. By the way, it will bless you as a parent. It makes it far less stressful to raise a child who's generous and giving than a child who's stingy and always wants and wants and wants much better for you. It's much better for everybody that honors God. Again, generosity if viewed as a rule will fail, but generosity if viewed as a loving act will succeed. Now notice Paul stressing the need for this to be motivated by love as a grace from God. Verse eight, I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he's the eternal God after all, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What's going on here? Paul is taking this radical Christological theology of Christ's 
richness, set aside so that he might become poor and sacrifice everything for us as an example of how we should live our lives. He uses the generosity of Christ's love for us as our example. We then are called to love others. So what we need to understand is that generosity is less about a principle and definitely far less than being about a rule. And it's actually more about the gospel incarnate. Christ was generous and we're Christians. So if we follow a generous savior, how can we be possibly be stingy? Christ has given his all for us, his entire life for us. So that's what motivates us to be giving and generous, to be free-handed with our material possessions. Verse 10, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So there'd been some movement in this church. They'd sort of realized this was an air of weakness and They'd started to work on it. So now finish doing it well, he says, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So, I mean, it's great to have the desire and, and to start, but keep going. Make it a core value, if you could call it that in your life, a virtue, uh, something you're just absolutely excited about and committed to. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Hmm. So I'm supposed to make it a lifestyle to live generously. And my generosity really has nothing to do with what I have or don't have. And it has to do with my desire, my attitude to follow in the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus was incredibly generous, but he had incredibly little by way of material means. He just gave his all. Poured out his life for others. Instead of collecting, <laughs> he contributed. Instead of looking to receive, he just poured it out. Now, how many of us can say we're actually like that? <laughs> None. But hopefully we're moving in that direction. And we're less concerned about self, self-pleasure, self-satisfaction, personal momentum, personal goals being reached. And we're just more concerned about looking for opportunities to pour out our lives for the cause of Christ. The passage goes on to say, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened but that as a matter of fairness, you're abundant at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. He's not putting all of the weight on one church, but if everybody kind of does it, it's just part and parcel of kingdom living. Everybody benefits. There's a fairness there to that. As it is written, whoever gathered much 
had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the principle of the word of God that teaches us that when you give in order to receive, you fail. But when you just continue to give generously, your needs are always met somehow. This is a mystery. I've seen it happen time and time again in my life and in the lives of others. Like from an accounting perspective, it makes more sense to just keep everything for yourself. Just accumulate, accumulate. Make sure you max out your RRSP contributions every year. Just keep upsizing your house. It's a great investment. Makes sense. Mathematically. But this is spiritual math. And the idea here is you shovel it out, God shovels it back. Guess who has a bigger shovel? When you give to others, they in turn give to you. When you have an abundance of possessions and time and treasure and you give that away, what goes around comes around. And the time will come when you might be in need. I remember when we were growing up, many of you know my story. Uh, my parents separated when I was 10 years old. And we just went from like middle class to like lower, lower class overnight. We lived in cooperative housing for several years. We were extremely poor. My mom was trying to raise six kids, I think on $50 a week in groceries in the 80s. And I mean, day after day, we went to school without lunch, day after day. And mom would somehow find food and she'd drop it off, you know, at school. And it was kind of embarrassing because it wasn't a lunch like the other kids have. And you know, I, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to grow up in poverty. I know what it's like to have empty cupboards. I know what it's like to feel kind of shamed and embarrassed by your circumstances. I get all that. But I remember time and time again when someone in the church would just slip us a little bit of money and that would meet our needs for the week. Or they'd say, hey, just meet us in the parking lot. And we'd go out and they'd be parked next to us and they'd open their trunk and we'd open our trunk and they'd take groceries out of their trunk and put it into our trunk. Time and time again when people met our needs. And the fact that I'm here today proves that God always came through, right? He always came through. And now I have the opportunity as a much wealthier man than I was when I was a kid to meet other people's needs. What goes around comes around. And I would like to think that some of the needs I meet, those people then be well-equipped to meet the needs of next, the next generation or people in their community. We're all part of this together. So I meet your needs, you meet mine, you meet the needs of the person in the vehicle next to you. They meet your needs. And we all are blessed and benefit from that. We also meet each other's spiritual needs and social needs and psychological needs and emotional needs. This is the joy and blessing of being part of the kingdom of God. So here we have received today lots of great, very practical, very directly applicable advice that frames Christian generosity in this positive light. It's all positive. It's all good. Giving is not a negative word. It's a positive word. Generosity is not to be, oh, that's a drag. Oh, man, what a, another rule. Went to church today, got another rule. It's not like that. You're supposed to be motivated 
by your love and affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. So rather than legislating generosity, think of it this way. We are being invited to be generous. As an expression of the gospel and as a church that wants to follow in the example of the Corinthians, the Macedonians before them, and Jesus Christ himself before them. We give first to the members of the household of faith, and then we look for opportunities to be engaged in the world around us. Churches then need to work hard at creating a culture of generosity. And this means receiving big and giving big. That's the kind of culture that actually contributes to a gospel culture. Now, here's what's interesting. I've thought about this a little bit. Uh, Over the years, we all meet church haters, people that just hate the church. And they have their own little like cliche basket of negatives that they throw at the church. They're innuendo, they're trash talking the church. And because of the circumstances we're in right now as a church, trying to take a a stance for what we consider equity and justice and righteousness and culture, (laughs) this has been amped up. And you you read a few of the comments that people throw at the church, the church haters, right? It's open season on the church. And one of them, it revolves around money, right? This is the age old way to trash talk the church. Oh, it's all about money. They're just all about money. It's like, yeah, this is a great economic plan. Let's get fined hundreds of thousands of dollars and hope that somehow this benefits us. It's stupid talk. But this is the reality of it. This is, this is one of the, the ways that people ridicule the church. Now, it's true that on very, very rare occasion, you know, you hear of a pastor or church that's misused their money. But out of all the churches in the world, it's like, you know, 0.000000001% of churches that are snaky and they mismanage their money. So yeah, there's a few out there and they tend to make the news, right? Not the generous churches, but the churches that have ripped people off. So that's true. But what, what can happen is because of this cultural pressure, we're like, well, we're not gonna talk about money. We're not gonna talk about generosity. We're, you know, we never wanna bring it up. But what we're actually doing, if I've read this text correctly, is if we fail to talk about generosity, we're actually failing in part to communicate the gospel. Because the gospel is incarnational. And as the church receives big and gives big, we are actually putting into practice part of the gospel, which is the generous sacrificial nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not collecting to keep, we're collecting to give back. It's kind of like economies, right? Economies that are flatlined is where no one's giving and no one's uh, spending. But economies that are robust is where there's, there's money being circulated in culture. People are buying big, people are being paid big. And as the money circulates, the economy grows. And in the same way, in God's divine economy, as we give of our time, our talents and treasures, we put the gospel on display. So it's as much, it's as much, um, it's as important as forgiveness is to the gospel. Now we talked about the gospel. It's about God's forgiveness. That's true. The gospel is about forgiveness. The gospel is also about generosity. 
So why am I called to forgive those that have offended me? Because Christ forgave me. Why am I called to be generous to others? Because Christ has been generous to me. And sometimes forgiveness is hard. And sometimes generosity is hard. In our flesh, we don't want to do either. But if we go back to the gospel and ground forgiveness in the gospel, it makes so much more sense. Joy is also grounded in the gospel. Marriage is grounded in the gospel. It's a portrayal of Christ in the church. Church discipline is grounded in the gospel. Christ calls us to account. So much of our faith is grounded in the gospel. Forgiveness, marriage, church discipline, dealing with bitterness. And so is generosity. It's grounded in the gospel. Gospel-centered people then are generous people. If you're a gospel-centered person, you won't have to be told to be generous. It'll just naturally flow out of your life because you understand the generosity of Christ for you. So may our generous God then continue to bless us so that we can in turn generously bless others.